This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. BFM 89.9. Good morning. I'm Keith Calm. You're listening to the best of the Breakfast Grill for 2023. Today, we revisit the significant events and prevailing trends that shaped the year. This year, we witnessed an unprecedented escalation of the US-China tech war, with both superpowers fighting for the 21st century's most critical technology, semiconductors. Just a year after issuing restrictions on sales of advanced semiconductors by American firms to China, the Biden administration cut China off from more U.S. chips and expanded curbs to other countries. In January this year, Wong Xiaoning asked John Neufer, the CEO and president of Semiconductor Industry Association, which represents the U.S. chip-making industry, on how Malaysia can take a larger bite in the global semiconductor industry. Does Malaysia have the right policies in place so much so that this is a destination of choice when it comes to setting up a plant? I will say that there is more energy in this effort in some countries than there is in others. And what do you mean by more energy? Just in terms of more incentives? My recommendation has governments really need to focus on this, need Mm. to have kind of a singular voice to talk to industry and put clear stack of incentives in place Look around the region, see what others are doing, and make sure that you can meet and better what others are doing. Okay, so if we look at specifically in Malaysia, what what are we lacking in terms of policies then? I, th- I mean, you, other than the singular so, voice. Like so, so Malaysia has strong policies, I, I, no doubt about it. And that's why uh, our industry is so s- strong here. Yes. My recommendation is government needs to focus like a laser to make sure that companies that are already here are taken care of as they're thinking about expansion plans and that companies thinking of coming into Malaysia are also courted. The reality is there is a fierce competition going on in the region. And if you're not kind of self-organized and if you don't have the the incentives in place, you're not going to be able to to take food off the tree. In the same panel conversation, Dato Sri Wong Siu Hai, the president of Malaysia Semiconductor Industry Association, shared the possibility of Malaysia navigating a delicate path amid the escalating US-China tension. Washington and Beijing are key political and allies and also major trading partners. Can Malaysia emerge victorious from this? How do we tread the balance then? We hope that we have this China plus one and US plus one and that the one is Malaysia that we can service both. But you see, we have been in the industry for 50 years. We celebrated 50 years last year. Mm. So competency and capability and management, leadership we have in Malaysia. So we can support US and we can also support China. Do we have to choose? Uh, we don't think we have to choose because China will have to find their own solutions. And that's why I'm concerned about uh, maybe decoupling of the advanced technology and new standards have been, will be established, one by China, one for the rest of the world. And how that is going to play, and hopefully we can play in both because we have the current... Uh, technology and standards. If China comes up with new ones, we'll also support. We are in a good place to uh, support both. Finally, we find out what their biggest nightmare is. So it's an invasion of Taiwan, which is the home to TSMC, the largest semiconductor company, I would say. It's the greatest fear for the semiconductor industry. Dato Sri, what do you think? I I think that is a very, very serious uh, problem because it will bring down the whole semiconductor industry. 
Mm. And we need Taiwan's capability. They're serving the world. It's not just serving US or serving China. I think that it has to be tread carefully, you know, on how you solve this problem. So the two sides need to sit down and have a discussion, constructive confrontation, and come to a solution for the benefit of the world. What about you, John? What do you think? Is it something that keeps you awake at night? I'm not an expert on geopolitics. Uh, I will agree with uh, SH that uh, it wouldn't just impact the semiconductor industry. I think it would be uh, a huge blow to the global economy. I can tell you that in our conversations with the U.S. government in, in Washington, lots of policy is being put in place thinking about what may or may not happen in that part of the world. That was Dr. Sri Wong Siu Hai, the president of the Malaysia Semiconductor Industry Association, and John Neufer, the CEO and president of the Semiconductor Industry Association. From the chip wall, we now shift our attention to a boardroom tussle that unfolded in Bursa, Malaysia. KNM Group is a PN17 company that was thrust into the spotlight after a group of shareholders, including German businessman Andreas Haitian, tried to take control of the group by serving a notice to remove all existing KNM. Directors. At the center of this drama is KNM's indirectly wholly owned subsidiary, Borzik. In early October, Group Chairman Tunku Dato Yakub Kira, which has a 9.5% indirect stake in KNM, sheds light on the heightened interest in the group just ahead of the EGM that could potentially mark his exit. He's interested in Bosic because Bosic is a beautiful company. It is, uh, it is it's forecasted to make uh, over 100 million ringgit profit a year, and which is why we're listing it in Singapore. Uh, Andreas Haitian is German, and his co-partner, uh, the previous executive director of KNM, uh, Flavio Poro, uh, they had worked together to sell Bosic to uh, Andreas Haitian. F- before even I joined some time okay. ago. But those deals did not go through. And now they're trying again. Uh, Flavio Poro, Haitian, uh, been nominated to be on the board to, to remove, whilst they remove the existing board. And this is their way of getting Bosic. Before it was to buy Bosic directly, but they couldn't raise the money to do it. So now they're going to, let's take the parent and take Bosic. Because it might be a cheaper acquisition. Much cheaper if, yeah. if KNM does not list BOSIC, if KNM fails to repay its creditors, mm. uh, the idea is KNM will collapse. Okay. And therefore, you can sell the asset cheap. However, KNM still has total debts to creditors amounting to 1.2 billion ringgit. Shouting asked him on the turnaround plans if the current board manages to retain control. Tunku Yakub, the crux of the matter is then what are your plans to bring KNM back to its former glory? It used to be a stock that traded at 8 ringgit. Today, 17 cents. It was once a darling of the oil and gas industry. Yes, we know the gem is Borsig, but debts of more than a billion ringgit. So what are your plans then? I was put on the board on 1st of November 2021 and I became chairman in February this year. So I've only mm. been there for seven months. The current plan is basically this. KNM has basically five operations. It's Malaysian operations, but it's also got four international companies. The only one that makes profit is Bosic. It makes actually very good profits. It mm. doesn't even have a bank loan. So Bosic is controls something like 60% of the world's uh, heat exchange business, which is why everybody wants BOSIC. Okay. Now, the idea with BOSIC is we want to list it on Singapore Stock Exchange. Let us say it makes 100 million ringgit profit. We'll list it at P of 15, which means the valuation of the company is 1.5 billion. Yeah. Our idea is basically to, uh, when we IPO, to sell 60% of that. Roughly, we'll raise about 800 million ringgit. Our total debts in KNM is 
1.2 billion ringgit. Okay. So from the listing of, of, of Bosik, we will pay a huge amount. Okay? You bring down your debt to 400 million ringgit. Yep. That was Tunku Dato Yakub Kira, the chairman of KNM Group Berhad. After the EGM in October, Tunku Yakub Kira and the majority of the current directors of the group have managed to stop attempts to remove them. The group has applied for a one-year extension to submit regularization plans and is in the midst of listing its crown jewel Bosik on the Singapore Stock Exchange. To conclude our local coverage, there is no escaping politics. In early September this year, the High Court granted a discharge not amounting to an acquittal against Deputy Prime Minister Datuk Sri Ahmad Zahid Hamidi for all 47 graft charges, including his Yayasan Akal Budi funds. This has led to a widespread surge of reactions, with many expressing anger and shock over the court decision as a prima facie case was already established at the onset of the trial. Shortly after, Wong Xiaoning posed a question to Rafizi Ramli, the Minister of Economy and PKR's Deputy President, probing the credibility of the party's reformasi agenda. You're not concerned that, you know, with this recent incidences, that the party has lost its credentials as a party of reform and that does not tolerate corruption? I mean, it's kind of ironic when the Rafa Masi moment just had its 25th anniversary. Not true. I mean, these questions BFM has asked every single time for the last five, six years. We did win. Mm. We did push reform bits and pieces. I, I accept the fact that um, the public, including the media, will ask questions from time to time because... When we do reforms, is expected of us. Yes. When our reform does not meet the kind of expectation from the media and the public or the pace, or because it didn't go the extent of some groups of people wanted, then reformasi sudamati. So it's expected of us. What is important is to, is to stay focused. And eventually, reform does not happen in one day. It's built upon step by step, one by one. And in doing so, is a delicate balance because we have seen what happened with PH 1.0. And if anything, the mistake of PH 1.0 is paying too much attention to the demands of so many noisy groups out there. Well, sometimes that's the job of the media to be noisy in the fourth estate. That was Rafizi Ramli, the Minister of Economy and PKR's Deputy President. In the aftermath of the court's decision, Moa MP Said Sadiq announced he is withdrawing his support for the unity government, which means the Madani government would no longer have its two-thirds majority. In response, Philip C questioned him about whether he believed there was intervention from the Prime Minister. In your view, right, what do you think that Sri Anwar should have done right to have made sure that this did not happen right with respect to the DNAA with Sri Sahid? What is it that he could have intervened to make sure that this didn't do happen? Do not intervene and follow the rule of law. Mm. I know. And did he basically demonstrate that he did not follow the rule of law? Yes, because in this part, I just want to say a few things. This is not a typical case where you can just say, oh, no, no, actually, I didn't interfere. This is all the AG doing it. And I hear this excuse, oh, it was yeah. Tan Sri Mudin who appointed AG. I mean, let's not beat around the bush. It was Datuk Sri Anwar who said last year that he was denied the Prime Minister's position because he didn't want to kowtow to the kleptocrats who demanded for the cases to be dropped. He said it, not me. Fast forward after elections, he paired up with the alleged kleptocrat. Above and beyond that made him the Deputy Prime Minister. Then cases were indefinitely postponed. The public prosecutor who successfully secured a prima facie case dropped and went into early retirement. And in between, 
this grey transition when the former AG was about to leave who he extended you can't keep on blaming the previous government who he extended and before the new AG came in all 47 corruption criminal charges were dropped but not just that sir after being probed by the media many times the Prime Minister himself admitted that the AG went to see him many times to discuss about the case mm. when is the right timeline what is the reason and everyone knows that the AG who he extended and the AGC is placed under the Prime Minister's office and the Prime Minister's institution. I mean, I just saw another interview, I think, where he spoke in Singapore, where he just, oh, yeah, yeah, the AG came to see me, this happened. He was very blasé about it. That's yeah. your frustration. I mean, come on. If this was said by any other Prime Minister, there will be riots and protests on the streets. Do have to go far? If he was leader in opposition today, today, he was the leader of opposition, hmm. Let's be very honest and sincere. Do you think that the reaction would be the same? I think there will already be protests on the streets. Parliament would be like, man, <laughs> there will be huge fights. But yet today you hear utter silence. Not for me. That was more MP Said Sadiq. In early November, Said Sadiq was found guilty on four counts of corruption and has filed for an appeal. Following the verdict, the former minister resigned as the president of MUDA. We will have more highlights from conversations on the Breakfast Grill in 2023, focusing on international affairs after these messages. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. BFM 89.9, I'm Keith Kam, and you're listening to the best of The Breakfast Grill 2023. Today, we are reflecting on the events that unfolded this year. Before the break, we explored what happened in Malaysia, and we now turn our focus to the international front. On October 7th, Hamas launched a surprise attack on Israel, triggering a new cycle of escalating violence in the Gaza Strip, an issue that has been seven decades in the making. The death toll has exceeded 20,000, while hospitals, schools and refugee camps remain a target. Against this grim backdrop, the world remains divided between those calling for a ceasefire, those backing Israel and some sitting on the fence. Shazana Mokhtar speaks to His Excellency Walid Abu Ali, the Ambassador of Palestine to Malaysia, on why Israel's narrative remains unevenly convincing, especially to the West. Ambassador, why do you think that the Israel narrative, why does it have so much traction in the West? Sympathizers in the West because basically I can tell you Israel control money and control media. What they can't do through money, they can do through media and vice versa. The issue of the Western world only look through one eye, unfortunately. They never uh, had just treated Palestinians fairly. We are victims of the double standards. When the international community, and particularly the Western world, just through their representatives on the ground, they witness on daily basis violation of international law. They witness on daily basis what the Israelis are doing against our Palestinians. Of course, I have to differentiate between the people of the Western mm. world and the governments and the regimes in the Western world, because governments are fully supporters of Israel. But the people, through what we see, what we witness, demonstrations all over in London, New York, in Washington, in France, in Germany, all over Western capitals, which they show their solidarity and support to Palestine. Mm. So the message I have, international community is responsible to put an end to the Palestinian suffering. We have been struggling for seven and a half decades since Israel was created. And if you allow me, if we have time just to differentiate, Israel is trying to convince 
the world that we are struggling and fighting them as Jews, mm. which is totally, I mean, a propaganda. Jews were living in Palestine before the creation of Israel, and they enjoyed their freedom. They enjoyed their rights in Palestine before the creation of Israel. Our struggle with Israel, because Israel is an investment for a project, a political agenda, which is Zionism. Mm -hmm. This is the issue. Finally, His Excellency explains why we should let go of any religious interpretation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Let me just highlight that the, our struggle is not a religious struggle with the Israelis. Our struggle is to be or not to be as Palestinians. Not because we are Muslims, because the Christians in Palestine are struggling side by side, shoulder by shoulder with the Muslim community. So our struggle is not a religious struggle. That's number one. Yes, the Israelis are invading Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. The Israelis are doing all what they should not do against uh, Palestinians, whether they are Muslims or Christians. As I said, when they do not distinguish between Fatah and Hamas, as well, they don't differentiate between Palestinians who are Christians or Palestinians who are Muslims. Malaysian has to understand that our struggle is the Israeli occupation. We want to get rid out of the Israeli occupation. This anti-Semitism, which the Israeli use as a propaganda to pressurize the Western world whenever anybody speak uh, uh, in favor with Palestinians, Immediately, Israelis attack them and they say anti-Semitism. What they are doing at the moment is a genocide. What they are doing at the moment on the ground in Palestine, it's a state crime against Palestinians. Where is the international community to stop and put an end for the Palestinian suffering? That was His Excellency Walid Abu Ali, the ambassador of Palestine to Malaysia. Finally, the crypto space saw a tough 2023 as regulators began to ramp up pressure on the firms. We saw a long list of crypto hotshots falling from grace. And what tops them all is Sam Bankman-Fried, the one-time cryptocurrency golden boy that was convicted in one of the biggest white-collar criminal trials in US history. The verdict came just shy of one year after FTX filed for bankruptcy in a swift corporate meltdown. Philip C. spoke with Wall Street Journal's producer and reporter Rachel Humphreys and Kate in Ostrov on this long trial that lasted months and how the prosecution made its case. Could you help us contrast the different narratives that both the defence and prosecution wanted to paint on SBF? The prosecution had to tell a story that the jury could understand and their aim was to show that Sam Bankman-Fried intended to carry out fraud and they wanted to show that that was something that he had done very early on into the origins of his companies. And they also wanted to show that he kind of co-opted others into committing this fraud and encouraged others to commit this fraud. And so that was all about intent, was what they were trying to show. And then the defense was trying to disrupt that and, you know, show that it was more complicated and show that it wasn't as straightforward. And certainly, I think, tried to sort of show that Sam Bankman-Fried was this person who spoke truth and who didn't cave to the government, whereas the other people he had worked with, his so-called inner circle, you know, the three members, yeah. Gary Wong, Deshard Singh and Caroline Ellison, who all testified against him, they really tried to, to stand him apart, I thought, from them. Yeah, the, the defense was trying to say, you know, there was no intent to defraud. Um, and we noticed just kind of as we went through proceedings, there was a lot more jargon in um, the defense's arguments 
So we would sit there and hear, you know, gas fees and derivatives and like all of these kind of more complicated terms for a layman person who didn't know about a lot about finance or crypto. And me, so me, actually, <laughs> a lot of things I didn't. I'm not a, I'm not a finance journalist by training. So I, there's a lot of things that I was making note of that I thought that the general public wouldn't understand. I think like some people would expect as well, if you're covering this case, that you would understand some of these terms. But I think actually a lot of people in that courtroom didn't. And the prosecution's job was to show that you didn't need to understand those terms. Going into this trial, I think it was really clear that this was obviously about crypto. But really, the prosecution's argument, which I think bore out, was this, this was this was fraud. This was like straightforward fraud that we've seen happening for decades, actually. And it, you didn't need to understand crypto right. to understand that. And so the prosecution's job was to disentangle the confusion that the defense put out there and to show that it was it was different from that. Philip asked them, what was the most memorable moment from this trial? And I, I, I'm not sure if you remember, but the first time that he testified, that actually happened without the jury present because there was this odd thing that doesn't happen very often in the court system here, where there was a piece of evidence, there was some evidence that the defense wanted to put across and the judge said, you know what, I don't want the jury to hear this, but I want to mm. hear you kind of fight it out, if you like, with the prosecution in front of me. And then I'll decide if the jury can hear that. And that I still think stands out as like one of the most memorable moments of this trial, because we got to see Bankman Freed give a, a pretty disappointing performance on the witness stand when he was up against the prosecutor, Danielle Sassoon, who was fast on her feet and came out of this trial as like one of the stars, I would say. She was very impressive. And that contrasted, you know, he was, Bankman Freed tried to do what he did a lot in interviews, which was sort of spin a bit of a web or, or avoid the question. And she would not let him get away with it. No, because he can fill he could filibuster or just kind of dodge questions in interviews, but literally sat in front of the U.S. government. That's not quite an option. And it was also very interesting because that was the one moment where we I don't think I realized that prosecutors had been holding back until that moment. Mm. And when the jury exited, you really saw that she was she was leaving nothing behind. Every question she wanted to get out of her system that she knew the judge would throw out, she just asked questions knowing that the judge would say, you can't ask that. And it just, it was brutal. So watching that performance from him and, and then also then seeing him on the witness stand with the jury where he was completely different from how we've ever seen him, just would really kind of refuse to answer all the questions or said he wouldn't know. That contrasted with, you know, Nishad and Caroline and Gary was very stark. And I think obviously that bore out for the jury who just took a few hours to reach their verdict. Yeah. And even though the jury didn't see quite that juxtaposition of his testimony on the first day versus the later days, there were also moments where the prosecution complained to the judge at these sidebars that we couldn't hear, but we read in transcripts later, where they would say, you know, Bankman Freed was angry when Ellison was speaking. Mm that he was kind of like moving around in his seat. Like they, they were interpreting all of these signs. And if the prosecution could see that, the jury likely could as well. That was senior producer Rachel Humphreys and Caitlin Ostroff, the reporters at the Wall Street Journal. That is all for our recap of Conversations on the Breakfast Grill this year. You can listen to all the interviews featured today on the BFM app or on our website, bfm.my. This has been the best of the Breakfast Grill 2023. I'm Keith Kam for BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.